Welcome to Kelly Corrigan Wonders. I'm Kelly Corrigan, and today I'm wondering about where, when, and how we educate young adults once and for all about sex and what exactly goes on in a college-level class at the University of Washington called the Diversity of Human Sexuality. My thought partner today is Dr. Nicole McNichols. She's a fierce advocate for grounded, informed, inclusive, and specific conversations about this thing that plays such an important role in our lives as individuals and, of course, as a society. Please note that today's episode, in addition to discussing sex, also touches on sensitive topics such as eating disorders and suicide. We'll be right back with Kelly Corrigan Wonders. Hey, everybody. If you love listening to true stories from people all around the world, then we have the perfect recommendation for you, the Moth Podcast. Each episode features people from moth events around the globe, sharing diverse and honest stories of love, resilience, change, heartbreak, chance encounters, unbelievable calamities, and everything in between. Episodes drop weekly. Find The Moth Podcast on Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Kelly Corrigan Wonders is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Welcome back to Kelly Corrigan Wonders. I'm Kelly Corrigan, and today is another episode in our Live from College series. My guest is a psychologist and a sex educator. Her name is Dr. Nicole McNichols. She teaches a class called Psych 210, The Diversity of Human Sexuality at the University of Washington. Nicole's teaching philosophy is sex positive. Her course emphasizes safety and pleasure. She embraces LGBTQI plus identities and issues. She rejects shame and stigma and acknowledges that our sexuality feeds into the very essence of our self-identity and happiness. Nicole and I talk about her class, the positive effect she feels it has on her students, and her strong belief that sex education should be an integral part of any liberal arts curriculum. Here is my conversation with Dr. Nicole McNichols. We like to think all of our episodes are worth sharing with someone. This episode in particular might start really important conversations with your children and whoever you co-parent with. So please share. All right, let's get into my conversation with Dr. Nicole McNichols. Hi. Hi. You big sex professor, you. (laughs) (laughs) The most popular class in the history of University of Washington. Yes, it is. It is, which is, uh, it's been a journey. It has been so much fun. At what point in your educational journey did you think, one, I'm going to go into psychology, and then two, I'm going to go into the psychology of sex? Well, 
I tell people all the time, I didn't actually grow up thinking that I wanted to be a sex professor. I always had an interest in psychology and got my PhD in it in 2009. And while I was getting my graduate training, worked really closely with a woman named Lois McDermott, who had taught the class that I teach now at sort of a smaller scale for about 30 years. And it was really through my work with her that I became more interested in human sexuality, really saw the impact that it had on students, really began to appreciate just how desperately it was needed, right? There's no federally mandated sex education in the United States. And students were coming in with really just no understanding and just so much fear and so much anxiety about sex. So I just really realized I want to go into this and I want to be able to help people and I want to be able to connect with students and hear about their experiences and really kind of, you know, do my part to try to create a world where we are more accepting of ourselves and more comfortable with our sexuality because it's such an important core part of who we are. And I just think there's so little knowledge out there and so much stigma and so much bias and so much shame. And to get over that, to really be empowered, to feel strong, to feel like you can accept yourself and to understand others, we need a good education. So so you didn't yeah. want to be a counselor. You wanted to teach in an academic environment. Yes. And was it just sheer numbers? Like you could just reach so many kids in that's, a year? That's really what I felt like my strength was, was just being able to reach large numbers of people. And it's the same reason why I didn't keep the class really small, right? I mean, it could easily be a, you know, 12-person seminar. But really, it was something where I just wanted to get the information out to as many people as I could, because I really strongly believe that anyone who wants sex education, anyone who wants to understand about these things, which really I think is most people, people deserve to have access, right? I mean, we should be able to find the information that we seek. In the preparation for this, I thought this should probably be in the core curriculum. It should probably be required so that nobody needs to opt into it, so that there's absolutely no friction in terms of disseminating all of this information and knowledge that's so core to all people. I totally agree. And I cannot tell you the number of students who write that on the course evaluation at the end of the quarter, who come and tell that to me, who write me emails saying that. And, you know, I think it's a little bit tricky because I think even though this is college and not high school, I do wonder if parents would just freak out if they found out that their child had to take a sex education course. If you look at Washington State, it wasn't until November 2020 that they finally passed a law that requires sex education in schools. And there was a huge fight about it. So I think that one of the issues, especially at a university that's a state university, is just the pushback that you might find. So I have two more questions now. One is, what items are you like, this definitely has to be on the syllabus? And two is, are there other countries that do this better than we do? Oh, great question. So the syllabus is extremely broad. It covers everything from female sexual anatomy, male sexual anatomy, gender identity, gender expression, transgender, sexual orientation, sexual response, sexual behavior, sexual harassment, partner violence, sex work, like literally you name it, we cover it. So it's a lot of information to pack into a 10-week quarter, but 
It's critical. I, I wrote a textbook a couple of years ago just so that I could feel like everything that I feel like students really need to know is in one place. It's an interactive textbook. It's based online. It gives students opportunities to interact with each other so that they can have conversations while remaining anonymous about these topics, which they may be afraid to do live in lecture. We, I try to have conversations um, in class as well, but there's some students who are just going to be more comfortable sharing their sure, opinions. Yeah. How many class periods do you do just on anatomy? I do a um, two-hour lecture on male anatomy. I do a two-hour lecture on female anatomy. And then I show what I think is possibly my most favorite documentary ever made, which is entitled In Search of the G-Spot. I highly recommend it, <laughs> which <laughs> is sort of a supplement to the female anatomy. Okay. So back to my other question, which is, are there other countries that do sex ed yes. and have more positive attitudes yes. towards sex that we so should be emulating? The Netherlands does a beautiful job. They have very sex positive sex education. I show a clip of it in my class where you see a teacher teaching middle schoolers. They're talking about not just anatomy, which is what most kids get, but healthy relationships, right? All of the contextual factors that go around sex. Because we're not just having sex as this secluded act. It's happening in the context of another person or multiple partners. And understanding how to navigate that is really important. I mean, I don't think that our definition of safe sex should be limited just to protecting ourselves from catching sexually transmitted infections. I think that we need to be practicing safe sex in a way that's keeping in mind our emotional and psychological makeup and understanding that we need to be sensitive and compassionate and kind to our sexual partners, whether it's a one-night stand or an ongoing 20-year marriage. I just want to also point out that the Netherlands, because they have such good sex education, they have one of the lowest sexually transmitted infection rates, lowest unplanned pregnancy rates, highest number of women who, after their first time having sex, report having had an orgasm or enjoying it, whereas the U.S. has one of the highest STI rates, highest unplanned pregnancy rates. So the idea that by not teaching kids about sex and encouraging abstinence-only sex education, the data shows that only causes problems. People are going to have sex. It's just a question of whether you're preparing them for it or not. Right. So what else is critical to your curriculum? Yes. Okay. So I think one of the things that gets me the widest eyeballs <laughs> is <laughs> I show... Um, you know, videos, clips of people having sex because we assume just from the movies that we're all supposed to have sort of this incredible ability to please each other without even thinking about it. And it should just be something that's automatic in our mind and we never have to learn about it. But actually, you do need to learn about sex. And what you see in the movies and porn is not realistic. So, a show clips from, there was a great documentary that was out in, um, actually in, it's British, and it was called The Girl's Guide to Sex in the 21st Century. And it has since been taken down from YouTube. I think it was viewed as porn maybe, but anyway, it's so not porn. It is interjected with interviews with different researchers. And what I love about this series is they actually put cameras um, externally, but also internally, which shows exactly how all the different types of physiological responses actually are 
working. So that's fascinating. How many college kids are in the classroom when you're showing this? Oh, about like 400, 500. And Um, is there just so much like squirming around in the seats and giggling? Yeah. And (laughs) I talk about that at the beginning of the quarter, which is, it's really important to have the right environment. We need to be respectful, inclusive. We need to be kind, compassionate. But it's okay to laugh, right? I mean, I personally think sex can be very funny and you have to laugh. It's a humor is a great coping mechanism. Now, I will admit that the first time I showed some of these films, rookie mistake, I didn't give students a lot of warning. I just kind of started playing it (laughs) and there were (laughs) tons of screams and laughing and people like diving under their desk. So now. How long now ago a did you start warning. teaching this class? About 10 years ago. <laughs> Do you notice a difference in those 10 years in terms of how much porn people have consumed? Yes. And at what ages and how distorted that is making their perception about what sex is and could be and should be? Absolutely. Porn was around, of course, 10 years ago, but it has definitely become more and more prolific. And it's relied upon nowadays by a lot of kids as their primary source of sex education. You know, research shows that the average age that a child kind of stumbles upon porn. Oh God, I don't even want to know. 11. Uh I know. And um, by the time they're 12, 14, 15, 16, 17, more and more of them are starting to watch it more regularly. So in my own research, what I find with my students is that there's sort of this interesting paradox because On the one hand, students are having less sex than we were, people our age were 20 years ago. So the age at which they're losing their virginity or having first sexual intercourse is about 17, whereas for us it was about 16, and they're having sex less frequently than we were, but... With fewer partners? With fewer partners. Uh But the type of sex that they are having is kinkier. And it is more reflective of what we see in porn. What are the assignments in your class? (laughs) So um, the assignments are mostly the textbook that I wrote. But it's, you know, again, it's an interactive textbook. So students are expected to not just read, but participate. Basically, it's like there's a almost you can think of it as like a message board or like a a thread, almost maybe think of it as like even what you might have on Twitter, which is embedded under different sections. And the book does, you know, what I really liked and what my main goal was in writing the book and my co-author really, Matt Numer and I aim to do is tie in not just the most recent compelling, important research, but also bring in relevant current events, of which there are obviously so many. And so a lot of times it's asking students to reflect on these, right? To think about things that have happened in their lives, in their experiences, how these things remind them, how they feel personal, and to also read other students' you know, experiences and to respond and start these conversations. So, Did you guys spend yeah. much time talking about Me Too and Harvey Weinstein and oh, Bill Cosby? Yes. And- oh, yes. And so that's a perfect example that I was actually just going to mention. Yeah. So we talk a lot about Me Too. We talk a lot about Harvey Weinstein. We talk a lot about the normalization of rape culture that would enable an environment where that type of harassment has just gone for years and years and years, you know, completely not called out, just considered part of what you kind of were expected to do as a woman in the workplace. And so, yeah, asking students to describe their experiences and 
And then we spend a lot of time in class doing polls where because there now exists this, you know, software so that students can submit answers to polls in real time and I can show the results in almost what looks like a PowerPoint graph. It's sort of automatically calculated. Students can see, gosh, I'm not the only one that experienced sexual harassment at school. I mean, it literally is a me too moment where they see that they're not the only one that's experienced that or is afraid of that or has felt a certain way. Are things coming to you through the polls or the work through the textbook that you're required to take action on? Like, are you learning about rapes or assault in the home or? I, you know, that's a great question. And I haven't had that happen because students are submitting it anonymously. But I have had students in the class who do come and speak to me who have had these experiences. And most of the time it is you know, something where they have already gone and they're in the process of filing a complaint or they have filed a complaint. But my job absolutely is to help connect them with resources so that they feel empowered and can go forward and get the support they need and take the action that they need. I mean, I've had students write me afterwards too, saying that something happened after the class and they felt like because they kind of learned about how to recognize sexual assault and how to recognize, for example, the temptation to blame yourself and understanding that victim blaming gets internalized and that we're taught to think, well, what should I have done differently? Was it my fault? Did I bring it on myself? Understanding to not fall into the trap of letting that thinking consume you. You know, they've reported that that's been really helpful to them in moving on. I wonder if these 10 years that you've been teaching this extraordinarily popular class has changed the sort of sexual culture at University of Washington in a way that's measurable. Like, I wonder if you have less sexual assault, less harassment, less rape than uh, another comparable institution. Yeah, that's absolutely my goal. I have not formally looked at data on that yet, but I plan to. I mean, it's something I would, you know, absolutely... It would be so satisfying. It would be so satisfying. If it were measurable. Yeah, yeah. What do parents say about the class? Do you get much feedback? Well, so I'm lucky in that I'm different than a teacher in high school or middle school where I don't have direct contact with students' parents. However... I'm very active on social media because a lot of my students were moving on from my class and wanted a way to stay in touch. And so I I started an Instagram account, Nicole the Sex Professor, and it kind of grew and grew and grew. And a lot of the people that started following me were actually, I found my students' parents. And so a lot of them have messaged me and reached out to me through that and have all been just wonderful. I mean, just send me messages, you know, just saying thank you for the work that you do. And I feel like I've learned so much just from your work as well. And yeah. yeah. (laughs) We did this series about teenagers in the fight for climate justice. Oh, wow. And one of the things that surfaced was that there is this super powerful, super high potential intergenerational learning where kids are teaching their parents things that almost no one else on earth could teach that adult except their children because they're so motivated by that relationship to keep that relationship solid and dynamic and connected. And so you're probably teaching a lot more people than just the 4,000 people that go (laughs) through your class every year. So satisfying. Coming up next, we'll check in with some of Nicole McNichol's students. 
and then ask her to explain how learning about sex might benefit their education across the curriculum. We'll be right back with Kelly Corrigan Wonders. This episode was funded by the great people at the Arthur Bining Davis Foundations. You can learn more about this fantastic organization at avdf.org. The Arthur Vining Davis Foundations, investing in our common future. When you're hiring for your small business, you want quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than, wait for it, a billion professionals, which makes it the best place on earth to hire the right people. It gives you access to applicants you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and totally intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have this many qualified candidates right at your fingertips. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn Jobs just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash kelly. That's linkedin.com slash kelly to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Kelly Corrigan Wonders. I'm Kelly Corrigan, and I'm talking today with professor and sex researcher, Dr. Nicole McNichols. While we were visiting the University of Washington, I had the chance to sit down with a few of her students and capture their thoughts on this most unusual and popular class. So, have you ever heard of Psych 210? Yeah. Yes. yes, we love Psych 210. You do? Yes. Have you all taken it? Yeah. yeah. I'm taking it in the fall. Yeah. I've Boy, heard you're going to learn about I've heard a lot of things. Amazing things. <laughs> what do you still remember from that class? Like so many things that I didn't learn in high school that I really should have. <laughs> I feel like a lot of like just anatomy things and yes. like relationship, like healthy communication. Mm-hmm. It, it was oh just, I felt so uneducated. I felt, I was like, this is my body and I don't even know what it looks like. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it did inform me <laughs> in a lot of good ways. <laughs> How about you? Um, Probably one of my favorite things from that course was we talked a lot about gender and sexuality and kind of the differences between sexual identity versus expression, all those sorts of things, which were just ideas that were never clarified for me growing up. And why did you want to sign up for it? What's the word around town about this class? Everybody who I've met has been raving about it because I think it's it's something that's not talked about enough. And this teacher is somebody who is openly talking about it and asking these questions and like very knowledgeable about things that people want to learn about but don't no, we're talking about. Yeah. It's the most popular class yeah. ever at University it's of Washington. Now, I'm not afraid to admit that I learned something new today at 54. Yeah. So, yeah, seriously, <laughs> it's really cool. So, here's a question How do you think your class informs their other classes? In other words, are they thinking differently in their history class or their biology class or their chemistry class or their sociology class? because they've taken this class from you? Well, I think that hopefully one of the things that comes out of it for them that 
will really kind of translate across different classes and domains. And it's sort of a life skill that all of us could probably work on is learning to sit with uncomfortable emotions and feeling confused. And, um, you know, because a lot of students feel like they don't, know necessarily who they are. Maybe they're struggling with their sexual orientation or their gender identity or some aspect of their sexuality, or maybe they're learning something about themselves that is different than how they viewed themselves before, or that really goes against what they grew up believing, right? I think students start to really realize too that we take a lot of the knowledge that we've learned for granted, assuming that it's all true, right? When a lot of the lens that we kind of come to problems with that that in terms of how we approach sort of different people or issues in our lives is really kind of colored by whatever information our parents, our communities, our friends have fed to us. And that at a certain level, you need to question those assumptions, right? You need to be able to question that knowledge. And then I would also add to that just This idea of, you know, I always tell them in the classroom that you need to take ownership of your own learning, meaning, you know, (laughs) you need to do the reading, you need to come to class, but it also means looking at these concepts and really thinking about how do they relate to me. And I don't think you have to be a psychologist to know that when you relate material to yourself, your brain just learns it better. You just remember it better. It just feels more relevant. It feels more urgent to remember. And so I think that when students can then go into a history class or a humanities class and think about, well, how does this book that I'm reading for my English lit class remind me of my own experiences? Or is it possible that this book or this perspective is, you know, including information that is confirming a particular view that's the agenda or the view of a certain person? So really kind of engaging in critical thinking in that way and understanding that sometimes you're going to read things or things are going to be hard and that's okay, right? It's We live in a culture where there's so much sort of forced positivity sometimes when things are supposed to just be happy, happy all the time. And, you know, if there's a problem or you're struggling, we assume that it's really bad. But there's a beautiful book called Bittersweet, and I'm totally blanking on the author's name, but she really talks about how you have to have the bitter and the sweet. You need to be able to Is it Susan Cain? Yes, Susan Cain. Thank you. Um, Where, you know, you need to embrace both and you can't really have one without the other. So I was thinking more specifically, like like the history of science Mm -hmm. and if Freud was this dominant figure for so long, but that actually at work in his thinking was this kind of unexamined misogyny. Yes. And this bias towards heteronormative sex that we're now looking at completely differently. Like that might alert you to dynamics over the course of history that are present in the sciences, which are not supposed to be filtered through. Yep personal biases. Exactly. So it sort of like flags something that's probably true is that whoever's telling the story and whoever's making the claims about what is and what has happened and why things are the way they are has this tremendous power to flavor it one way or the other. Yes. What are the sort of pros and cons of a liberal arts education in 2023? Oh, I think a liberal arts education is absolutely critical. Um, You know, it's interesting Kelly, because I think that there's been so much focus on STEM 
in the last decade, two decades, which is obviously so incredibly important, that liberal arts and the humanities has almost gotten deprioritized a little bit in a way that I think is unfortunate because, you know, learning to analyze information, learning to write, learning to communicate, learning to think critically, those are really important skills that are going to apply to any profession that you go into, as well as in your personal life, right? I mean, writing really is thinking. And I think that students should be given the opportunity to have that type of well-rounded education. Um, so, I th- yeah, I think it's critical. If liberal arts is critical, is it critical to have an education that includes a course like yours? Yes. Well, obviously, (laughs) I think that my class should absolutely be included. But again, I just feel more comfortable with the idea of a student choosing to take my class because they're just going to be in such a better position to be receptive to the ideas that I'm teaching. Has the administration reached out to you and said, what are you doing in this class that's so popular? Uh, only to thank me. I mean, they haven't really been, <laughs> you know, the... the Nothing yeah, but positive. Nothing but positive. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're very laissez-faire with, with all professors, really. I mean, it's it's really nice that we have kind of the freedom to shape the course, the syllabus, however we want. And I've, you know, I've never gotten um, any pushback, only, only nice support. Is there any part of your curriculum that is either really hard for you to teach or really painful for them to take in? Yeah, I think sexual assault for sure is the hardest for me to teach. And it's always a fine balance. I mean, I give a trigger warning. I tell students that if they feel like it's going to really trigger them, that they have options in watching the lecture, they can watch parts of it or, you know, just read the textbook. Um, But yeah, that's a difficult one to teach. And then sexual harassment because I show different clips that kind of show what sexual harassment looks like that are really hard to watch. Mm-hmm. So, Have yeah. you been sexually harassed? I have not, but I've had people in jobs when I was in my early 20s maybe look me up or down or maybe make a comment that they thought was flattering, that was really kind of annoying, um, that, you know, I just kind of would glare at them and then they would stop. But... The thing is, Kelly, like for every person like me that feels like they are in a position where they can kind of do that, there are so many that don't come from that kind of, you know, position. They come from a demographic, a background where they haven't been made to feel empowered and they don't feel like they have this position of privilege really where they can fight the person off and tell them to go away and to quit and to speak up. So yeah, yeah, it's not hard for me in the sense that I've experienced it. It's hard for me in the sense that I just see a lot of my students who are struggling with it. Yeah. Okay. So you write a lot in psychology today. I want to get your thoughts on a few things. One is the surprising connection between sleep and sex. Yes. What is it? 
So there is so much new research coming out about that connection. And it really is, it goes both ways. So to the extent that we sleep more soundly at night, we tend to have better orgasms. We tend to feel, report higher levels of sexual satisfaction. For people who are in relationships, they report higher levels of relationship satisfaction. And, you know, that's for a number of reasons. I mean, having a good night's sleep is going to make you feel a whole lot better. And I think, you know, what people don't realize is that with sexual desire in particular, there's so many things that go into whether or not we feel a sense of sexual desire. It's not just, oh, I see an attractive person. I'm now horny. It's much more complicated than that. It may feel that way very early on in the beginning of a relationship. But as we get into a deeper, more established relationship, or if we're not in a relationship where sex drive has so much to do with things like stress and sleep and health conditions and anxiety and depression and sort of a lack of mindfulness. So I think that being able to focus on things like that really helps you experience better sex. And then there's also this effect that the more sex you have, the better you sleep at night. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that for something like what I read is that like 97% of people, maybe it's 96% of people report that they sleep better at night after sex. However, the effect typically only holds true if there's been an orgasm. So if there hasn't been an orgasm, you may be a little bit more restless actually throughout the night. It can have the opposite effect. Mm -hmm. But um, with orgasm, that tends to bring deeper sleep. So it works in conjunction. (laughs) And what about the link between body image and sexual mindfulness and desire? I, I feel like this body image stuff is so intense and I'm so mad for all young people everywhere. Oh, yeah. At Instagram for... setting things up the way they have and emphasizing the things they emphasize. And it just hadn't occurred to me how that might be just ruining sex for so many people. Oh, I completely agree. It's, again, that idea of mindfulness, right, goes into our feeling of desire. And there's so much research showing that trying to exercise sexual mindfulness, which really is the same thing as mindfulness. It's just this idea that when you're having sex, you're going to be focused on the sensations in your body. You're going to be focused on what feels good. You're going to be focused on what your partner's sexual cues are. That's what it means to be sexually mindful. The opposite of sexual mindfulness is something called spectatoring, which is a term that was coined by sex researchers Masters and Johnson in the 60s, who described it as an experience where you're almost looking at yourself and silently judging yourself while you're having sex. And that's become increasingly common because, again, people are watching porn and thinking that you're supposed to be looking a certain way or supposed to look like that Instagram model. And you're just, that's just not realistic. It's just not, you know, it's bringing you outside of your body. It's putting you into a a place where you're judging yourself. You know, we know that with orgasm, it's the prefrontal cortex that has to quiet. If the prefrontal cortex is, you know, that's the part of your brain that's responsible for planning and analytical thought and conscious thinking, if that part of your brain is going, 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 you're not going to be able to enjoy sex. So yeah, mindfulness is something. Just bringing people back into the present and back into their own body is really critical for increasing the quality of our sexual experiences. 
And so if all these kids are having body image issues, then they're stuck in their prefrontal cortex? Yes, exactly. And, you know, the the body image, the body positivity movement, right? It's so, so important for people, especially young women, but also young men, people of all genders, just to understand that what they're seeing is not real, right? That we have so many filters. Maybe some model is taking a picture of herself and she looks a certain way. And, you know, she's starved herself though for the previous 24 hours. It's not real. But at the same time, what I try to tell my students is rather than trying to aim towards body positivity, which actually can introduce its own type of pressure, let's aim for body acceptance, right? Like, let's get away from having to pass judgment at all. It's appreciating what your body can do, appreciating how strong it is. I know personally, I feel like I have the most body confidence when I've been exercising and I feel strong and I see the things that my body's capable of doing. I think if we can focus on its function and everything it does for us more than trying to force ourselves to like stand in front of the mirror with positive affirmations, um, that that's sort of a more effective way. And, you know, again, just put the judgment down altogether. Yeah, exactly. It is neither good nor bad. Totally. It is something miraculous for completely other reasons. Exactly. One of my favorite things that's ever been said on this show is that we had a woman on who battled anorexia for 12, 15 years. And she said the turning point for her was she's a nurse. And the first time she saw a woman's body give birth, she thought, oh, that's what it's for. That is the point of a woman's body. That is so beautiful. It is not to be observed and objectified and picked apart and analyzed and evaluated and passed judgment on. It's to do that. I love that. There's one more thing I wanted to ask you about how attachment style impacts sexual satisfaction. Absolutely. So there's been a lot written about attachment style, especially recently. And it's interesting because it's not necessarily as intuitive as you might think. So first of all, just to give sort of a broad overview. Yeah, please. A little primer on attachment. Okay. Just I'm like, where should I start this? Okay. So attachment style is the idea that we form these attachments with our caregivers in early childhood and that the type of bond that we have with our parent kind of forms this blueprint for what we kind of feel like love feels like, right? For how we relate to people. And that kind of stays consistent with us throughout our adult lives and it impacts how we um, connect with adults in our adult relationships. So essentially there are four kind of main types. You can be securely attached, which is a person who generally says that they feel like they can trust partners in general, have an easy time forming connections, miss their partner when they go away, but is not falling to pieces, is okay when they come back, isn't consumed by insecurity. Then you have an anxious attachment style, which is a person who is kind of really nervous about the bond, always sort of worried that the partner is going to leave them, uh, reports that they want to just completely merge with their partner is always kind of scanning the environment or the relationship for signs that the partner might be leaving. Mm. Then we have an avoidant attachment style, which is a person who has just kind of grown up typically feeling like you just can't really trust other people or depend on other people. 
So whereas an anxious attachment style person might grow up with parents who made them feel like they weren't safe unless they were there, a person with an avoidant attachment style may have grown up feeling like their parent was there sometimes to give love, but most of the time wasn't going to really be too demonstrative or, you know, there wasn't like a whole outpouring of affection. And then you have what's deemed kind of like the quote unquote worst one, which is a disorganized attachment style, which combines elements of both anxiously attached as well as avoidantly attached. A lot of times people who have a disorganized attachment style grew up with parents who were alcoholics or had addiction or were abusive. And just not only is there sort of a um, mistrust that their partner's going to always leave, but there's even then this distrust that they can even depend on the partner to begin with. And anyway, do you yeah. buy into, as a psychologist, do you buy into the attachment styles? Absolutely. Okay. Yes, there is really robust data. And I think they're an incredibly helpful framework for understanding our relationships. Now, what I don't believe is that, you know, I did say that, so this theory originated from looking at children and this idea that it carries across the lifespan, but we know that attachment style can really change depending on the situation and the partner. If you are in a relationship with someone who kind of makes you feel like you're not quite sure where you stand, they don't always text back right away, um, you're not quite sure if you're their priority, that's going to make any person feel anxious, right? I mean, that kind of a, a style, if you, there are elements of anxiety in you, that it will definitely prime that. The same way that if you're in a relationship with a person who just seems like they are start to feel really needy or don't ever want to like do things on their own and get nervous anytime you don't text back within an hour, they freak out. That's going to make any person feel a little bit avoidant. And if you have a little bit of those attachment styles, but you find somebody who really shows up for you emotionally, that can make you, you know, transform into a secure attachment style. So, so it's not destiny. Yeah, it's so not destiny. And I think that's where, see, that's the thing is that attachment style is a super helpful way to be reflective and understand yourself and look at your relationship and understand how you're responding to your partner and how you can make tweaks so that you can kind of understand the particular wounds that each of you are struggling with. But I really have a problem when people start diagnosing themselves and putting themselves in these boxes and declaring, I'm anxious, I'm avoidant, I'm this. Like, you're right. not that. That's what your experience is now, but you can change that. It just takes self-awareness and work. Yeah. So how do those attachment styles drive sexual yeah. engagement and pleasure? Absolutely. Okay. So securely attached people, not surprisingly, tend to report the highest level of sexual satisfaction compared to the other insecurely attached types. People who have an anxious attachment style more often engage in risky sex. They may use sex also to try to maybe manipulate a partner or to try to use sex as a means to get closer to a person or to make another person jealous. Um, Sometimes avoidantly attached people, we see two patterns. On the one hand, they may just avoid intimacy altogether. They may have sort of less of a desire for sex. It feels almost too raw, too vulnerable. Or they may use sex as a way to prevent kind of really having an honest conversation about a conflict in the relationship. So it's kind uh -huh. of like, let's not fight. Let's just have sex so we can avoid talking about it. Got it. Yeah. Before we finish up with Nicole, I wanted to share a bit more from a few of her students at the University of Washington. Give me three adjectives to describe your college experience. I would say challenging, worthwhile, and ooh, 
I'm trying to come up with a word for kind of like I've grown into who I am. Uh-huh. Like I feel more secure and kind of more settled. Good. Unpredictable, incredible, and messy. Growth, challenge, and love. Anything else that I should tell the old people about what's going on in college? I feel like it's the first time you can fully get to know yourself. I think for once you're on your own. You're not trying to necessarily fit in with the cool kids. You get to really mm -hmm. like create your own path and really decide who's worth your time, what's worth your time. And that has been very gratifying for me. The last thing I was wondering is, you know, a lot of conversations I've been having lately with all these professors around the country, one of the things that a lot of professors talk about is critical thinking and, and how that's developed in a curriculum that you would see in a liberal arts school. And one of the pieces of critical thinking, of course, is understanding sources and how varied they are and their dependability. And then also staying up to date like knowing what has been overturned in terms of the understanding research data in their particular field. Is there anything that we used to think was very true, unassailably true about sex that we've now discovered is completely limited thinking on our parts? Well, I mean, the first place that my brain goes to with that question has to do with sexual orientation and gender identity, right? It used to be um, being, you know, homosexual was in the DSM as a mental disorder. It wasn't really until 2003 with Lawrence versus Texas when, you know, it was declared unconstitutional to make sodomy, which is what anal sex had been classified as, um, illegal, right? So many states had sodomy laws on the books because they thought that gay sex was evil or bad. But then we had Alfred Kinsey come along who did his research who showed that not only is it, you know, quite normal and healthy to be gay, but most people don't just fall into a binary box where they're either gay or straight, right? It's a, our sexuality is a spectrum. It's one that's fluid for a lot of people. They may experience different attractions, different types of people that they're attracted to throughout their lifetime. I think Lisa Diamond is a research that has some really fascinating work on, on gender fluidity. And one of the things that I love that she talks about is Think about other aspects of our attractions. So, for example, one thing that is true for almost all humans is that we tend to be sexually attracted to people who are our same age. But what that means is that when you're a teenager, you're attracted to people who are mostly teenagers, whereas when you're 50, you tend to be more attracted to people who are 50, right? Or if you're in your 30s or attract people in your 30s, well, that's changing, right? That's an aspect of your sexual orientation, right? The age you used to be attracted to young people, now you're attracted to older people. So just as that changes, there are going to be other aspects where maybe at a certain point in your life, you were attracted to men and women. Now you're just attracted to men. Now you're just attracted to women. Or maybe you were, you, you started out in one category and now you kind of define your sexuality with a different label. So sexuality is much more fluid 
and more dynamic. The gender of the person who you want to go have really hot sex with and whose clothes you want to tear off isn't always necessarily the person that you're attracted to, that you want to fall in love with and establish a long-term bond. It's, again... It that, just, I feel like, has been known for a long time. Yes. Like, I mean, you know, the, the history is... Yeah, exactly. But even in terms of sexual orientation and gender, right? I mean, it, there are people who might feel like they are attracted to people of all genders, but really only fall in love with men or really only fall in love with women. I see. Yeah. I want to pause here and say that we're going to be discussing suicide and suicidal ideation so that you can take the opportunity to skip ahead if you like. And then the other thing is with transgender is understanding that that's also not a mental disorder. There's been so much research coming out of Christina Olson's lab. She was at the University of Washington. She's at Princeton now, I think, and does the Trans Youth Project, who's found that, you know, well, first of all, we know from lots of research that trans youth tend to really struggle with mental health issues, right? They tend to have a lot of anxiety, depression, almost 30, 40% will attempt suicide at some point in their lives. But what she's found is that if you look at trans children who have parents who support their identities, right? Like if they're in communities and have parents that support them, that allow them to transition and to support them to be who they want to be, that their mental health outcomes are exactly similar to those of cis children. So, I mean, again, I think what we were diagnosing as being a problem before or somehow being an illness is just we're, we're understanding that diversity is a good thing. It makes us stronger. It's adaptive. As a species, we've evolved literally to be diverse, just as any other type of biological species has. Yeah. And that's an interesting crossover, like from taking your class to being in a biology class and starting to see and hear the biology through the lens of some of the conversations they're having in your class. That might be sort of makes for some interesting connections. I hope so. On the mental health and suicide note, I did want to say that I just saw a psychologist recently who said, if you want to lower the chance of suicide, teen suicide in your house, by 60%, there are two things you can do. One is no guns in the house, not locked up guns, no guns in the house, and talk positively about LBGTQI issues. Wow. Make it clear from the, you know, from when your kids are toddlers. That's amazing. That that's, everybody's welcome here. That's amazing. You got no problems. I love that. It's not like the number And one. I believe it. I mean, I think that that's exa- that makes complete sense is totally consistent with what we've seen with with the research looking at mental health outcomes, again, of kids that grow up in the, just those types of families. So how do you think these kids who are going through your class will show up in society differently? I hope more open-mindedly, and I hope that they'll be more accepting of people who are of different diverse backgrounds, different diverse gender expressions. I also really want to help them to focus on having healthier relationships, though. I think that, gosh, with today, social media and technology and just the way that they all communicate with each other, I'm sure, you know, I I have teenagers and I've seen they'll all be sitting around, but the way they're talking to each other is still over text. It's created sort of a lot of confusion, I think, in terms of when you date someone, how do you know if they like you? How do you know if they're interested? Online dating, which has just completely transformed how people meet each other, kind of what the norms are. And 
you know, it's so tricky because it used to be <laughs> in the olden days that if you were interested in someone, you had to actually pick up the phone, right? You had to actually go see them. But nowadays, you know, it's as easy as you like an Instagram post or you send a DM. It takes so little effort to kind of stay in someone's orbit. And I think that there's a lot of confusion around that because people, they're ghosting each other and they're, you know, there literally is a phenomenon known as orbiting where somebody is just sending you little messages, but not actually Entering your space. Entering your space. So they're just kind of occupying all your headspace and causing tremendous amounts of anxiety, but not actually occupying your space. Right. That's interesting. Thank you so much My for coming pleasure. and talking to us. Thanks My for pleasure. teaching this class. Absolutely. Thanks for having so much good information online. Thank you. Here are my takeaways from my conversation with Dr. Nicole McNichols. Number one, anyone who wants sex education, anyone who needs to understand these things, which is probably most of us, deserves to have access. Number two, our definition of safe sex shouldn't be limited to just protecting ourselves from STIs. Safe sex also implies protecting us emotionally and psychologically. Number three, research shows that the average age a kid encounters pornography is 11 years old. Number four, the more sleep you get, the better your sex life is. And the more sex you have, the better you sleep. Number five, maybe the key to body acceptance has nothing to do with appearances. It's about appreciating the things your body can do. Number six, Looking at the Netherlands, there seems to be a correlation between a commitment to sex education and lower rates of sexually transmitted diseases and unplanned pregnancies. Oh, and the highest number of women who, after their first time having sex, report enjoying it. Number seven, if you want to lower the chance of teen suicide in your house, there are two things you can do. Remove guns and talk positively about LGBTQI issues. Make it clear that everyone is welcome. Number eight, kids in college are going to have sex. Let's prepare them to take good care of each other and themselves. I'd like to thank Dr. Nicole McNichols and the students who took the time to speak with me at the University of Washington. I'd also like to thank the team at Kelly Corrigan Wonders. That's technical producer, Dean Kateri, and executive producer, Tammy Stedman. I'd also like to thank the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations for supporting this podcast. Finally, thank you all for listening and for sharing episodes with your kids and whoever you're co-parenting with. Join us again next time for Kelly Corrigan Wonders. We'll be back on Friday with another For the Good of the Order, and then on Sunday with a very special thanks for being here. Hey, I have a quick favor to ask. We are conducting a survey to get to know you, our audience, better. It won't take long, and it's easy to find. Visit survey.prx.com. Dot org slash Kelly. That's survey.prx.org slash Kelly. Thank you.